Before I jump into my first sermon as your new rector, um, I just wanted to pause for a second and say thank you. Thank you so much for the incredibly kind and gracious and warm welcome that you've given to me and to our family. Moving is not easy. Um, Transition is not easy. And you guys have given us a real soft landing here in Gainesville. Um, Your kind gifts and words of encouragement have just meant so much to me and to my family. And so before I say anything else, I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Would you uh, pray with me as we celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, how many of you believe in aliens? I'm talking about extraterrestrials, you know, intelligent life from another planet. Okay. Now, how many of you believe that aliens have visited Earth? Less hands on that one. People are being a little shy. They don't want to admit that they believe. But 34% of Americans, uh, believe it or not, believe that aliens have visited Earth. And now, some of you, that might sound totally crazy. But uh, recently, the U.S. government has started declassifying all of these close encounters the military has had with what they're calling UAPs, which stands for... Um, unidentified anomalous phenomena. And uh, they changed that. You probably knew the old term, which was UFO. I think they thought, oh, if we change the term to UAP, people will not be as terrified. There's no UFOs flying around out there. They're just UAPs that are terrifying our fighter pilots. But recently, even former President Obama said, what is true, and I'm actually being serious here, is that there is footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. So maybe those of you who do believe in alien encounters are not so crazy after all. Uh, You can feel better about yourself, even if you didn't raise your hand for that one. And I think, what, what does that have to do with transfiguration? Well, I think there's a way that we could read this passage from the Gospels as an alien encounter of sorts. Think about what the scene is. Three men are all asleep. When they're awoken by bright lights shining on them. Their friend Jesus has lasers coming out of his eyes. And his, his clothes are dazzling white. They're glowing. These otherworldly figures appear to them in the midst of a glowing light. Then a mist comes and they hear a booming voice commanding them from the heavens, from above them. And when the mist clears... The otherworldly figures have vanished, and their friend is standing there alone. Do, 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 do. <laughs> it's weird, right? This is a very weird scene. It sounds like something more out of National Enquirer than it does the Word of God. But what if we're reading it the wrong way? What if instead of a story about humans being visited by aliens... What if this is a story about humans visiting an alien civilization? What if Peter, James, and John are not being visited so much as they are peering through the reality of this darkened world and peeking into the kingdom of God? Now, why do I say this? Why do I think that's what's happening in this passage? Well, Luke begins his account of the transfiguration by writing this. 
Now about eight days after these sayings. What are these sayings that he is referring to? Well, just before our passage this morning in Luke 9, 27, Jesus says to the disciples, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, for many Christians, that's a puzzling verse, right? Because we know that Jesus didn't come back and judge the living and the dead within the lifetime of Peter, James, and John and the other disciples, right? And so it could be a little confusing. But the Gospel of Luke makes it clear that when the disciples see Jesus transfigured on the mountain, they are seeing the kingdom of God before they're dead. While they're still alive, they're seeing, they're peering into, they're getting a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Luke gives us another clue when he says eight days. Now, that might just look like a kind of throwaway line. He's just keeping everything in right order, giving us the calendar of when things happened. But eight days is really important. It's not an inconsequential detail. In the Old Testament, the eighth day symbolized new creation. So if you think about it, the the first day of the week, um, Sunday, and the eighth day are the same day. It's also Sunday. And so if you imagine... The whole time that we live in, and you used the symbolism of a week, right? Then the first day would be when time began, and the seventh day would be when time ends. So the eighth day would be the new age. It would be the new creation. It would be when things are starting anew, when something new is happening. So Jesus, when he resurrects from the dead, he resurrects on the eighth day. We always say first day, but it's the eighth day. It's this new day of creation. And so Luke is using this marker of eight days to tell us that that we're getting a glimpse of the new creation, the kingdom of God on earth. So it's no wonder that at the end of Peter's life, this is the moment that he returns to. Peter writes, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What are these things that he wants them to recall? He continues, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him where? On the holy mountain. That's what our reading said. We were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration of Jesus is what Peter returns to at the end of his life. Not the miracles, not the teachings, not even the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The event that Peter goes back to is the transfiguration on the mountain. Because it's an alien visitation of sorts. They, Peter, James, and John, were alien visitors to the kingdom of God. They got to peek into the kingdom of God, into heaven. And that's what he returns to at the end of his life. The kingdom of God is any time, place, or even person where God's reign is fully established. The disciples saw that kingdom. They saw the majesty of Jesus, his glory, his reign on that mountain. Not only did they witness the transfiguration, but they were transfigured themselves and sent out to transfigure the world. That's why Jesus said later to his disciples, 
The kingdom of God is within you. So how does that happen? How do we ground this sort of alien, otherworldly experience that the disciples had in our lives today? Well, first, we enter the kingdom of God through prayer. Through prayer. We read this. Jesus took with him, and you may want to follow along in your Bibles. We're looking at Luke, um, Luke chapter 14. Um, that's right. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. I have the wrong verses there. Luke 9. So this is where we're looking. We read this. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So not only does prayer transform the world around us, It also transforms us. That's what we heard about in our reading from Exodus. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Because why? He had been talking with God. He'd been praying. He'd been having a conversation with God. When we go to God in prayer, his glory rubs off on us. We start to shine with the light of God into this darkened world. The people listened to Moses, not because of his own authority, but because he carried the authority of God. He'd been in the presence of God, and that had changed him such that he could carry that authority out into the world. In the same way, Jesus is carrying the authority of God into the world, establishing and expanding God's kingdom, the place of God's reign and rule. So prayer is is like this vehicle that, that transports us to another dimension. It's like you had a portal wherever you go that you can step through at any time to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of heaven um, and, and see a place where God's reign and rule is fully established. This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. We're saying the way things are in heaven, we want on earth. Where your reign and rule is fully established, that's what we want here. And where God's reign and rule is fully established, beauty breaks out. If prayer could change Jesus to make him more beautiful and more glorious than he already was, imagine what it can do to us. Imagine how it can change us. There was a guy... um, who started coming to our former church a while back. And when he first showed up, he was super depressed. Um, He was really down. He was in a really rough point in his life. Um, He would tell you if you asked him that he was in complete and total despair. He wasn't sleeping at night. He had terrible insomnia. And he was just deeply unhappy with his life. He had a lot of bitterness and resentment. Um, from different workplace stuff and stuff in his family. Just all these kind of broken relationships and guilt that he was struggling with from his past. And so he, he asked to meet with me and we, we started meeting. And I encouraged him to experiment with daily prayer. And I said, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy. Just try praying every day. And I gave him some really basic tools to start doing that. And there wasn't, I don't want to tell you like there was like an immediate change in, you know, his whole life turned around. That, that's not how it worked. There wasn't like an immediate change or breakthrough in his life. In fact, many of his external circumstances stayed exactly the same. But he was faithful to do it. He prayed every day. 
anytime we had a prayer gathering at the church, he'd be the first one there, like 10 minutes early. Um, you know, he'd be waiting for the prayer, prayer gathering to start. And as he was faithful to pray, as he was completely devoted to prayer, over time, he started to really change. And today, if you met him, you would have no idea that he was the same person I was just describing. He's one of the most joyful people to be around. And anytime I was discouraged in my ministry, he would just come up with a big smile on his face, put my arm, his arm around me and pray for me and just be filled and overflowing with joy. Now, I don't know that that, that doesn't always happen for everybody who struggles with depression. I, I wish it did. But for him, it was prayer that totally transfigured his life totally transformed his life what I want you to know is that's what happens when we pray our lives are transfigured it's in the place of prayer that we enter the kingdom of God and God changes us Jesus changes us verse 36 and when the voice had spoken Jesus was found alone let that sink in for a second. So they're up on the mountain. All these dramatic things are happening. And then it all clears away and all that remains is Jesus. Since the fall, God was hidden from humanity. When someone went to go meet with God, there was clouds and thick darkness that you had to get through to get to God. But now the clouds have cleared away. And all that remains is Jesus. Jesus alone. The disciples have been making a journey into the holy of holies. And, and in the holiest place, they discover Jesus. The person where God's kingdom is fully established. Okay, so first thing is prayer. Second, we carry the kingdom of God to the world. So we enter the kingdom of God through prayer. And then we carry the kingdom of God to the world. The kingdom of God comes on the mountaintop, but it never stays there. Peter, you know, is ready to set up camp on that mountaintop. He's like, let's make some tents, Jesus. Let's hang out here for a while. This is great. And I don't want to knock Peter too much because his heart is definitely in the right place, right? I mean, he wants to be in the courts of the Lord. He wants to be with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I hope all of us would want that. You know, and sometimes when we've had a profound spiritual experience, sometimes we want to just stay there. You know, maybe some of our youth didn't want to come back from Camp Araminta. They're like, Mom and Dad, you don't have to pick me up. I'm going to stay here. You know, those of you who are going to A4D, maybe uh, you'll have that same experience and not want to come back um, to, the, to, the, to the real world, you know, to the working world. You know, but times of encouragement and intimacy with God are often followed by challenges and suffering. A spiritual mentor of mine used to always say, everyone wants a burning bush. But nobody wants to do what Moses had to do. Right? <laughs> Often the experience of God's presence and power is to sustain us for what is coming next. Even Jesus faced frustrations and disappointments as soon as he came down from the mountain. His disciples who had just been in this kind of glory laser light show with him up on the mountain. They come down from the mountain and things that they could do easily before, they couldn't do. There's a, there's a demon and a little boy and they can't cast out the demon, right? Frustration, challenges. Right before our passage this morning, Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes 
and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is exactly what Moses and Elijah are doing on that mountain with Jesus. This is what they're talking about. Look at, look at verse 30. Two men were talking with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his departure. In Greek, the word that's used there is exodus. They're speaking with him about his exodus. You know, Moses was the one that we think about with Exodus, right? He's the one who led God's people out of captivity in Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. And in the same way, Jesus is going to lead God's people out of captivity to sin and death and into the freedom of a new creation through his death on the cross. And Elijah, who's also there, is the only person in the Old Testament to bodily depart into heaven. Which Jesus is going to do after the resurrection. And so Moses and Elijah are there to encourage Jesus for the path that lies ahead. And then not only does Jesus get Moses and Elijah to encourage him. But the father, the father himself speaks. Verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is to prepare him. Prepare Jesus For what comes next. And in the same way Jesus starts preparing the disciples. Right after he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He says let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus prepares his disciples. They can't stay on the mountaintop. They have to go out to the nations. They have to carry the kingdom of God out into the world. They have to take up their cross and follow him. We have to take up our cross and follow Jesus down the mountain and into the world. Jesus' transfiguration transfigures our lives. We, We go to the place of prayer. We encounter the living God and then we get sent out. That's what we were created to do. We were created to reflect the glory of God out into the world. We were created to have faces that shine with the light of heaven. But let me be clear, I don't think we should chase after becoming day-glow humans. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. It's a reflected glory. We're called to reflect God out into the world. It should make us humble because we don't have any glory of our own to reflect in the world. We need God's glory to be reflected by us. It should cause us to realize that the people around us, that surround us every day, are potentially people who can become like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Dazzling white clothing, a blinding face full of the light of God. Each person around us is an immortal being made in the image of God. In 1941, as Hitler was on the rise and he was just spouting off all this dehumanizing rhetoric um, about the Jews and about all sorts of other ethnicities, um, bombs are raining down on Britain. C.S. Lewis gave a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And in this sermon, Lewis is reflecting on this idea of the coming glorification of humans in the age to come. He writes this, and this is a long quote, but I want you to listen. It's so good. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. 
the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. C.S. Lewis is saying that every single person we pass on the street is created to carry the glory of God. Lewis says this should be a burden that we feel towards others. In other words, evangelism is not proving other people wrong and proving ourselves right. Evangelism is a burden for others to experience the presence of Jesus. And through that encounter become the glorious person that God created them to be. Lewis goes so far as to say, if we saw people that way, if we saw them in their full glory, if we saw the saints in heaven, they would be so glorious we would think they were a god or goddess and we'd be tempted to start worshiping them. That's what he says our neighbors are. As we draw closer to Jesus and see him more clearly, we start to see everything and everyone around us differently. We're eager to love and serve the poor because we see them as made in the image of God, beautiful to behold. We see the undergrads who are moving in in the next couple weeks, not as, oh, here, here they come again, but, but we see them as beautiful and eternal beings that God delights in and longs for. We see the medical residents and, and, and the professors and nurses as eternal beings made to shine with the glory of heaven. We see the, the 315 students that are going to be on our campus next week here at Gainesville Christian Community School. We see them as these potential saints who can be filled with God's beauty. We see our neighbors and friends and colleagues as created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. Where the world sees people of little or no value, we see people with infinite value. The value that God placed on them. What is the value that God placed on every individual? The life of his son. He said, I value this person so much, I gave my son for them. I want them to be filled with my glory. The disciples couldn't build huts and stay on the mountain with Jesus, gazing at his face. They were called to go down and see the image of God in every face. To spread God's glory among the people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Amen.